0: Hearing's more than an audiogram. Hearing's more than listening to a click and press the button. Hearing is appreciating the beautiful birds, the animals, the wind, the ocean, the surf—all these kind of things that we take for granted.
1: Welcome to Hearing Health Today. I'm your host, Craig Sharp. In this episode, we'll hear from Professor Kelvin Kong, who will discuss chronic otitis media and the current referral pathways for hearing loss. We will also explore the impact on First Nations people in Australia existing stigmas, and how access to care impacts outcomes. This is a podcast for hearing health professionals. If you are a person with hearing loss or a member of the general public, please seek advice from your health professional about treatments for hearing loss. Professor Kong, thanks for joining us on Hearing Health Today. Thank you very much for having me. Before we kick off and get started in today's topic, I just wanted to ask where you're speaking to us from today.
0: I'm speaking to you from beautiful Warram, my country, and I think particularly for our, our global audience, I want to paint a picture of some of the work and the places I go to from the remote of Australia, which probably most people are aware of, that rich red earth, the super blue oceans, to my country, which is Warram, my country, surrounded by sands and the sea and the fish and the animals. Um, it's a real delight. In this COVID period if there's some positive out of here of how beautiful our lands are and so on that note it's always important for me to acknowledge that I am on war my country and I would pay my respects to all the beautiful people across the world the First Nations people in particular who come from different parts of the world and also where you're coming from and it's a pleasure to be with you guys today.
1: Fantastic well thank you for including the Welcome to Country. So one question that we always ask all of our guests is what inspired them to become a hearing health professional? So I I might just ask you, Professor Kong, what inspired you to become a surgeon?
0: That's probably a a long-winded answer. I guess the the part of which made me uh, want to be a part of this community was really the origins of growing up. And if I go way back to when I was a young child, my mother was a a nurse. But for her to get to be a nurse, uh, there was much racism and there was much uh, depravity that she had. She never had the privilege of going to school. Um, She learned to read and write in a news agency. And they were actually living truly off the grid because they were worried about the white Australia policy, which actually meant that people were taken away from their families. And my nan and pop had this notion of this, this thing called an Australian dream, and it's just to raise a family amongst yourselves. And so because they had wanted to raise their own family, they had to hide from the uh, authorities. And hiding from your own government is something that's just so scary, and people don't actually think about it from that perspective. But long story short is that she had a lot of support around the local community, which I'm um, in for, and she managed to do nursing. It took a while to get into nursing, but she finally got through in that end point there. And one of the most fabulous things about her being a nurse was she was one of the few people in our community that were actually qualified in a health profession. And it was lovely as a child when we were uh, running around because our house was a buzz of activity. And if you can picture this, you know, old decrepit house, big backyard, lots of bush around the surroundings, and then all the family, and when I say family, I'm meaning our extended family, so yeah, second everybody. cousins, third yeah. cousins, everyone coming around. It's like a, a drop-in centre, mm. because people would come to her for health advice. And the hard thing about getting that health advice, obviously, is that um, it was fun because it brought a lot of kids. It was fun because it brought a lot of activity. And my sisters who are twins and they're older than me, and I used to fight over who would be the helper for mum. <laughs> okay. Nice. Removing stitches, cutting sutures, um, changing wound dressings, all those kind of things. And it wasn't until you got the high school that you actually realised, well, hang on a sec, why do not they just go to the hospital? Mm-hmm. Why do not they just go to the local doctor? Where's the local health centres that are providing help? Um, you know, they're taking away our family time, which is kind of a bit selfish when you're a teenager. And that kind of drove the uh, inspiration to think, well, hang on, there's actually a real discrepancy. Here. My non-Indigenous family and friends mm-hmm. didn't have any of these kind of issues. They went to the hospital. Mm-hmm. They didn't have the kind of health issues that we had. And you start realising, well, hang on, why is it our mob that are getting all these kind of things? Why is it our mob that are dealing with all this kind of stuff? And so that kind of inspired us to say, well, let's give back in some capacity. And I was really, really fortunate. I'm I'm very proud to say this, that I followed my sister's footsteps. Uh, They're twins. They managed to get into into medicine Mm -hmm. and I followed through with them. So in a kind of a way, I'm I'm, uh, admitting to the world that I kind of, was uh, following their footsteps and, and kind of led in their in their coattails, which is quite cute in some aspects. <laughs> and I've of my career to their success in doing that. And I think when I went through medicine and, um, and experienced some of those things, I fell in love with surgery and I fell in love with the ear. You know, how beautiful is the ear? This thing that whoever's created us made this tiny little thing that allows us to have this sense of hearing. And I always come back to this when I talk to anyone about it, is that Hearing's more than an Hearing yeah. Hearing's more than listening to a click and press the button. Hearing is appreciating, and particularly because I'm on war in my country, which I love bragging about, the beautiful birds, the animals, the wind, the ocean, the surf, all these kind of things that we take for granted, the music that you hear around you makes us emotionally connected to the world. And I think that's so, so important um, in life, but also so important in a child growing up to experience these kind of things. And so, when we focus so much on the negative or the uh, or the narrative of um, poor people not experiencing this, mm-hmm. I think far from that is that I like to think of narrative of how can we get other people to enjoy what I enjoy? How do I get, for example, my children yeah. to make sure when we go to the beach we sit down and listen to the waves, that we listen to the birds, that when they they hear a bird they say, "Dad, what bird's that?" You know. Mm-hmm. And then, And talk about a story of dream time, about what the bird means to us in our culture. And I think that's really important for us. And so that's what inspired me and that's where I ended up in this area. And so every day I come to work and I have the privilege, an absolute privilege and humility to be able to help people to get them back in that world where we actually enjoy it.
1: And I understand that you're not only the first Indigenous ENT surgeon in Australia, but just the first Indigenous surgeon, period. And I wanted to ask you, given your background, you shared um, a great story about growing up with your mom, giving health advice to a lot of your extended family and community with that experience and sort of bringing your heritage into um, your current role. How has that affected the way that you practice medicine?
0: First of all, medicine is a very busy career. So I think no matter what you do in your career, if you have a passion, if you love what you do, then you actually enjoy the long hours you do. And medicine is one of those things where you're always at work and it takes a lot of family time away from that. So yeah. it's also making very important to divide that. And so in answering that question, I guess it's really making sure that you have that uh, passion and drive mm-hmm. to make sure you can put in the hours to treat. In terms of how I teach differently, I think I treat differently because I am extremely fortunate and I think in in, in our country we are really, really lucky. And I think some of this COVID pandemic has really showed us how lucky we are, particularly in Australia. We're super lucky in some of the beautiful coastline and the experiences we have. But more importantly then, why is it that we're so lucky and privileged in the subset of things we get? And those subset of things are basic human rights, mm-hmm. a roof over our heads, food on the table, and a family around you that loves you, that you're not persecuted or discriminated against purely based on your race. And I think one of the things I always say, particularly in this kind of context, is that, Although I am the first Indigenous surgeon in the Western sense, mm-hmm. um, in Australia that is, um, we've had traditional healers for thousands of years. We call them nunkries in Australia. And the nunkries have played a really important role in Australia in the landscape of health for many thousands of years. And they actually used to do small procedures, certainly initiations and, and also many other things. And it's only a more modern era that they role is more in physician or primary health care rather than the surgical intervention. So in a true sense, there were many surgeons before me, <laughs> and I, again, am paying my homage to them because they've done all the work before me, and I've just been lucky to be boosted in this. But on the other aspect of that, it's really disappointing mm-hmm. that we're talking about this era where there's still only a handful of um, Indigenous surgeons in Australia, and mm-hmm. I think that's a blight on Australia, and it really shows and highlights the disparity and the discrepancy on how um, we need to uh, adjust to these inequities that we experiencing in this country.
1: And what about inequity of access to care? Because I know that's something you've talked about and written about before, just in terms of the ability for Indigenous communities to access care in general, but even more specifically, hearing health care.
0: Yeah, I think, well, for me, the, the important part of hearing, and particularly when we're in this podcast, when we talk about cochlear implantation, is that implantation has really shown us how important it is, to address hearing at a very early age Mm -hmm. in terms of neural pathways, in terms of uh, language development, in terms of speech development. And I think when I go to our commonest disease we see, which is otitis media, Mm -hmm. that there is this huge discrepancy in what we see and dichotomy what we see in Australia where we've got the haves and haves not, and that is purely the access to healthcare. Mm -hmm. Now, treatment regimes are very similar, no matter who you are. But the problem that we have, is that we present at an earlier age Mm -hmm. and we present with more chronic disease and therefore we present with a lot more complications. And I think the notion that people forget is that they think about remote Australia when they think about Aboriginal Australia and they think about remote Australia when they talk about hearing loss and hearing discrepancies, when in actual fact it's in our own backyard in Mm -hmm. the city. I saw a six-year-old kid, an Aboriginal kid, who had speech delay, behavioural issues um, and quite a lot of language and developmental delays and when I saw them examine the ears, they had maggots in their ears. Oh, in Australia, in the first world nation, we are surrounded by tertiary hospitals, which are the best in the world, where we're doing cochlear implantation, where we're doing all these amazing operations, interventions that we're seeing, poverty at a level that we're seeing in third and fourth world nations in our own backyard. And it really highlights to me that there is something innate in there because I, don't, I still don't believe that we are inherently um, racist and also inherently biased. I think what we don't realise in the way that we've been doing things for so long now, we're not actually looking after the vulnerable. Mm -hmm. We're not actually taking care of some of those people that need those access to hearing healthcare. I think it's our role as health professionals to bring this attention to the world, but it's our role to make sure that we play an even playing field so that everyone gets that healthcare. And where people get frustrated or maybe take the message the wrong way, it's not about dragging the other community down to say, you know, we want to be equal in there. It's about how we actually bring our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids into a world where when I show a photo of an Aboriginal kid and show a photo of a non-Indigenous kid, that I know that they're going to have the equal opportunity in this amazing country that we live in. But and unfortunately, at this stage, I can look at those photos and I can tell you that they're going to completely mm-hmm. pathways in their education and their long-term employment aspects.
1: And in terms of access to healthcare, in other countries in the world, there's often a discrepancy between access to healthcare based on whether you have insurance or not and your ability to afford healthcare. But in a country like Australia where there is universal health Care. Why do you think you see that discrepancy with the indigenous community? Is about the location of the outlets for care. Like, why are there so many cases that do come up where um, indigenous uh, communities and, and kids, in particular, just aren't receiving that same level of healthcare, especially related to hearing?
0: It's the unconscious bias we have in our in our system, mm. and I think. You know, Australia is very different because we have such a huge geography. So we're talking about urban, regional, and remote populations. Certainly in my community, which I would consider urban populations. Mm-hmm. Well, we've got a, a, a most amazing hospital we're doing incredible things that we talk in even the language in the healthcare system in the wrong way. So that if we have a clinic and people don't attend, we say they do not attend. And so the do not attend rate for Aboriginal people is quite high in the hospital system. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the problems with that is that we then inherently blame the community or the people for not attending the clinic. When, in actual fact, we should spin that around and say, well, hang on, why is the service so bad Mm -hmm. that no Aboriginal people are coming up the clinic? And when we changed that, when I moved my clinic less than five kilometres away from the hospital in a local primary healthcare facility designed for Aboriginal people, that suddenly we had 120% attendance, skyrocketed. We had a clinic there and as soon as I found a clinic was there, everyone just walked in there. So just the storage here from the families about the ear, ear troubles and hearing troubles, um, is just incredible. But my point being is that it wasn't a transport issue because it's right close to the hospital. Yeah, It wasn't an issue about attending on a day because they didn't want to be up there. It was purely about cultural safety Mm -hmm. being in an environment where you felt like you were listened to Mm -hmm. but also i guess if we as a hospital making a clinic go to the community that actually showed them that we cared, that we want to elevate it to a position which is important and so then the community respond to that and then once they get a feel of what the clinics are like we start getting this attendance rate now attendance rates continues to balloon which is fabulous because it's about that access to it and all the work we've done in looking at some of these things about screening, about access, about referral pathways, Mm -hmm. all come down to, mums know Mm -hmm. when their kids aren't doing well. Dads know when their kids aren't doing well from the hearing point of view and any listener out there knows that. And so the question not is why are we doing it in a way which inhibits it, the question is that if you know already, Mm -hmm. then why are we not providing the care that we actually deserve, why are we not providing the care that people want, when they actually already know what the answer is.
1: So I was reading some research in preparation for this interview that First Nations people are three times more likely to have otitis media and and chronic otitis media as well. What do you think needs to change in the healthcare system to bring those rates down? Is it as simple as having more culturally appropriate outlets for care or what, in your opinion, would help bend the curve down? On those rates.
0: I think there's a whole multitude of things that need to occur. And, mm-hmm. and I think the hard thing is that in such a, a small time frame, it's probably hard to talk about all the things that are required. Okay, But the important part of doing that is how do we change the culture that allows us to present these issues in a, an appropriate manner? So how do we make the hospital or the um, or the health service mm-hmm. more appropriate? Now, we need to address that on multiple levels. Mm-hmm. We need to make sure there's employment of our local people. We need to make sure that there's promotion of our local people. We need to make sure that our local people feel safe in a hospital environment because traditionally in Australia, if you went to a hospital as an actual person, you'd not come out most of the time, mm-hmm. and that's devastating and that's the reality of the history. But you also need to know that when you're in the hospital that you're not going to get discriminated against that You're going to feel safe in that kind of environment. And that happens on a daily basis, even more recently. Again, if I'm going to tell you about a COVID example that I experienced, um, when we go through hospitals now, we're all checked all the time, we're checking temperature and things. And I came in on the weekend. I was going to to the intensive care department Mm -hmm. to look after a baby who was born who was not breathing, so I'll do some airway surgery as well. And going through the hospital, a little bit um, um, rushed, also coming a weekend uh, from the beach, I was you know dressed in board shorts and, and and I wasn't you know my normal attire, but I was pulled up at the front doors and said, "The loading dock is around the back. You can't come through here." Oh, now I'm a professor in my hospital. I'm certainly well known in my hospital. Mm. Yet there was this unconscious bias to say that if you look like me, you don't belong in the normal part of the hospital. You're certainly not a stock in hospital. There's no way you're a professor in hospital. Well. And how you could be saving someone's life, you've been to get around the back where you belong. Mm. And for me, I was a strong man, so it doesn't worry me so much, but the community members who don't have that kind of strength in there, that they get um, persecuted by this, that they endure this on a daily basis, whether it's a hospital, whether it's a restaurant, whether it's a shop, that inherently people don't realise and not think about how that's affecting a person. If you're getting this on a daily basis every day, suddenly when something small happens and you blub about it, people respond and say, well, hang on, they're a bit overboard with this kind of conversation, when in actual fact, it's not one comment. It's the comment you get your whole life that actually endures, that makes you feel in this kind of manner. So we need to change that environment to make sure that happens. Once we change that environment, then the other part of that is then how do we actually provide those services to make sure that it's fun, mm. to make sure that it's interactive, and make sure that people want to come.
1: Yeah, and th- that was another thing I was going to ask. Is there a model of care that you've seen that that is working fairly well in terms of um, providing more equitable care um, to both Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians?
0: Across Australia, the best places that I've seen it all involve um, engaging Aboriginal people at the coalface of the intervention. Mm-hmm. So, even in the models that I have in my local community, um, it's not successful because of the fact of us, the surgeons, are going there. It is successful because of the Aboriginal health workers mm-hmm. or the Aboriginal health practitioners at the coalface, which are actually providing all the work, the promotion about awareness, about what signs are looked for, about how to engage and then actually almost like a caretaker and a guide into the healthcare pathways. And so all those kind of things are where the models are great. We're we'll also looking at different models in engagement. So the telemedicine and telehealth research that we're doing at the moment is, yes, nice to have telehealth and telemedicine, but what does that mean? And so we need to make sure that the community level, there are people that are trained up appropriately. They have to be local people. This fly flyout fly-out model doesn't work and we need to make sure there's more capacity and long-term sustainability in these clinics. Those are the kind of things we're looking at to make sure that we have some longevity in there because every time there's a funding blitz where we actually really applaud the government for those kind of um, blitzes in funding, they're not sustainable in the long term. Mm. The way we get this as a, uh, a long process is to make sure that the community involved, that the community are leading these decisions that the community engage in some of these solutions and that we support it. And we're kind of um, bookending all that process to make sure that the pathway from the community through the hospital intervention Mm -hmm. is as smooth as possible. And more importantly, as welcoming as possible.
1: And just for listeners around the world that might not be as familiar with sort of the indigenous community in Australia, the chronic otitis media that you see in Australia among indigenous communities, is that extensible to first nations people everywhere? Or is that something that is fairly specific to Australia in terms of the higher propensity for developing chronic otitis media?
0: I think the couple of things we're seeing in Australia, I can certainly speak from this Australian environment, is that most important is that the presentation of otitis media is at a younger age. So for the general population, certainly what we're looking at, is around, um, you know, two to three years where we're starting to see the higher incidence and prevalence of otitis media. For our populations, that's under 12 months where they're starting to present very early. Confounding that or make it worse is that there's no access to care until they're about two or three. And even when they're two or three, then it's a couple of years, wait before they get that. So they're enduring a large part of their life Mm -hmm. between zero and five, not hearing. Mm -hmm. They're enduring a large part of that life where they're not actually engaging in song, in singing, in dancing, in interacting, which means that they're falling behind in that aspect. And so that's why we're getting a lot more of this chronic disease process that's occurring. And I argue Mm -hmm. that I don't think it's a different disease process Mm -hmm. that we're uh, experiencing here. It's about getting the access earlier so we're not dealing with the complications. Now, if I've got any non-Indigenous community or cohort of patients and just let them linger with their titus media, I'm sure they'd get the same disease process. But the difference is there's early intervention, Mm -hmm. there's early treatment, and therefore when there's early treatment, it's actually rectified very quickly. And what we're doing is we're trying to work at the other end where we're dealing with the disease process when I think we should be working on both fronts where we should be doing a lot more preventative work a lot more engaging work at that early period so we're not having to deal with this later stage and slowly but surely we're starting to see that where we're not seeing as much in news for example mm-hmm. across australia because there's better intervention earlier on but there's still that lagging behind of what we're saying
1: so then it just to play back what you said so it might be less of a, a hereditary or a genetic issue and and maybe more of one around early intervention and preventative medicine
0: it's fascinating because it comes down to this um, uh, racial health.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I think for a scientist and certainly from a health background, we're always looking for an answer as to why this is occurring. And often we point to it must be a genetic issue, it must be a familiar issue. But I'm not seeing any of that in any of the research I'm doing. But we can't actually talk about or address, hang on, is this an issue about racial access to healthcare? Yeah. I think if you uncover some of that, I'm not saying one way or the other, but it certainly opened my mind up because certainly the communities that I'm visiting where we're doing more early intervention and getting more awareness amongst the community, We're seeing incredible outcomes, incredible outcomes. And some of the kids I'm mentoring now who are doing successful uh, are just incredible. And, you know, the next 10 years is going to be even more exciting for us.
1: So you mentioned some of the more successful models you've seen actually involve the community at the coalface and getting them sort of involved in the planning of how how care is delivered. Do you see a bit of a, a stigma around hearing loss or potential treatment in the community that needs to be overcome? There's a
0: shame factor associated with it, and the shame factor is being shy, being mm-hmm. intimidated, and also not having confidence. And confidence, as we know, in any sporting arena, in any professional arena, is so so important. So that if you're not engaging in speech and language by the time you're getting to primary school, or preschool, your language might be a little bit behind compared to peers. So suddenly you're suppressed, yeah. you're inhibited, you're intimidated. And that goes through your um, life course. I think that's important part of it so that when you come back to that area of how we address this issue at an early stage is about how we actually make sure that we overcome that shame factor associated with it, mm-hmm. that we overcome that, I guess, the uh, notion of, this is something that we shouldn't be talking about. Hearing loss is something we should be talking about. Hearing loss is something that we need to acknowledge. Hearing loss is something which is real and it's okay to miss conversations and ask all the time. Mm-hmm. And if I go to a, um, you know, some of the um, incarceration of our young population juvenile justice, a lot of the kids who are actually um, incarcerated don't actually even hear what's going on in their trial in the court case because mm-hmm. they can't hear. And they're too ashamed to actually speak up and say, I didn't hear what they're saying, I didn't understand what they're saying they just nod their head and say yes. And then by the time I'm seeing them, you're realising that, man, how did you actually go through this and not even ask that question? Now, in that kind of a system where you're very um, devalued or that you don't have that power or you're dehumanising many aspects, if you start saying, huh, I didn't hear you, then you're going to get turned around, you're going to get flogged or you're going to get victimised or get punished. Now, that's a simple kind of human right that, you know, if you don't hear, but then if, if you're asking her or what, Instead of saying, hang on, do you have a hearing loss? They're actually saying, you're a smart ass. Why are you listening to me? And so it's changing that whole philosophy around understanding what people are going through and how they're understanding it. But of course, again, by the time they get the juvenile or teenage years, you've missed the boat. We need to keep rewinding back to how do we stop that from occurring?
1: So what does the treatment pathway look like in most cases for Indigenous people, especially children that have a hearing loss? that might need further intervention. So what does that look like today, I guess, and what should it look like in the future? The hard thing is
0: it looks like this. Mm. Silence. Yeah. Nothing's happening. And that few seconds of silence is what they're enduring the whole paediatric life. Mm. And that's what breaks my heart because we've got all this hearing loss in this country, we've got first world healthcare provision, and we're not joining the two together. And so we see more of this life cycle of hearing loss and depravity and poorly educated and unemployed and social issues, and it just recycles again and again and again. Our role is to understand that this is such an important issue in the life course. Our role is to appreciate that from a public health perspective, we need to make sure this is a very, very high priority. In fact, one of the most highest priorities that we could possibly put on any kind of health chronic disease. Chronic hearing loss is not even recognised as a chronic illness in the Closing Gap reports. Hearing loss is so instrumental in making sure kids develop properly. The neuroplasticity, the pathways of education, all come down to being able to hear. And so I, I implore and I certainly stress to everyone I talk to, policymakers, bureaucrats, families, mothers, fathers, that we need to make sure that we're hearing well. If we're hearing well, then we can relax a little bit and make sure that's
1: okay. So the World Health Organization recently came out with the World Report on Hearing, which did talk about um, the importance of early intervention in hearing loss. Do you feel like that is starting to get picked up more and more by policymakers and by other decision makers around changing the way that healthcare is delivered and the importance of early intervention and detection of hearing loss? Or is there something more that we need to keep doing to raise the profile?
0: I think the beautiful thing about the report is that the overarching goals of the report is to try and make ear and hearing an important issue in the public health arena, mm-hmm. but also an important issue in the life course of anyone growing up. Now, if we try and tease that out a little bit, it's quite important to appreciate that this is not about doing a surgery. And so, people talk to me as a surgeon and say, "Well, you want to do more surgeries?" No, I don't. The issue about this. Is how do we, and I guess I appeal more to people with children, mm-hmm. if this is your child we're talking about, this is your grandchild we're talking about, how do we make sure that their dreams, that their ability to be employed in a profession where they're gonna have passion and a lifelong happiness mm-hmm. is achieved at a very early age, and how do we make that happen? That's what we're talking about. And the funny thing about it is it's a basic human right. Yeah. We're not talking about a wonderful world of all these kind of medicines. All we're talking about is if you've got a kid, let's make sure they're hearing, let's make sure their speech and language is developing, let's make sure that they're progressing in the life course of happiness. And if we can achieve that, then all these ear issues will be solved. We won't be dealing with some of the, the chronic aspects of it. And if I go back to when I look at chronic suppurative otitis media or chronic pussy discharge ears, it's a big operation to solve. It's a big intervention to get involved in. Now, if I could meet that child two years earlier and look after him so he didn't get to that stage, then wouldn't that be better for everyone?
1: Do you think there's some metric or some simple question that uh, primary care providers, Indigenous healthcare providers, could include into early assessments to help try and pick up more of this hearing loss earlier on so we could start to better understand if we're moving the needle on this thing or actually able to, you know... Detect even earlier that there might be a patient who needs earlier intervention.
0: Yeah, I think we're we're always looking at ways in which we can do that. And in Australia, we have this um, program called the Plum Hats program, which is looking at some of those uh, questions around what kind of things they should, could hear, what kind of language you they have. Mm-hmm. But I would like to even take it back a step further. Anyone here listening to this podcast um, knows anyone with children mm-hmm. know when there's something not right with their child. Yeah, whether it be a whole lot of things. Now, obviously, speech and language, when your kid's 12 months or 18 months and other kids around them are running around and yours is not, when the other kids are talking in three or four words or five or six words and your kid's saying, "ma dad, and that's it, you already know there's something going on. The issue here is how do we translate that question that the parents have to either, one, relieve them to say, your child's abnormal development pathway, mm-hmm. or two, hang on, we need to bring you in and look at that aspect. And then I come back to, again, Mm -hmm. depending on the postcode, which you live in Australia, you can get that kind of question pretty quickly. And the problem that we have, and I come back to this, is access to healthcare and access to the questions. So the answer question, whoever we need to arm with that knowledge to make sure that that question is answered is who it is. So for some communities, it's going to be the local GP. In other communities, it's going to be the health worker. In some very remote communities, it's going to be the grandmother or that wisdom holder in that elder aspect that's going to say, you know what? you better go get that health check for your kid because I'm a bit worried about the hearing. It's about how we actually empower people to have those questions answered that they're worried about their child. And then the other part of that then is the second part, which is then even if they miss that, what is the safety net to pick them up? So what is the targeted screening surveillance that we need to make sure that it's actually... Uh, viable for us but also productive for us to be able to do this kind of stuff. And all those things are very important. So, you know, the advent of technology now is so good that we can actually do hearing tests on iPads, on iPhones. We can Mm -hmm. um, uh, do some basic language tests where schools are intervening. So, you know, education and health should be having meetings and talking about kids growing and developing. But to get a Minister of Health and a Minister of Education in the same room together and talk across and cross-pollinate is a really hard thing to do.
1: Yeah, it's hard.
0: But that's the kind of conversation you should be having because we have those in healthcare all the time. I work with audiologists, I work with speech pathologists, I work with social workers, and I consider us all as one big happy family. Um, It's not about one leading the other. It's about, you know, here's we talk about a a community raising a kid. This is a health community raising a kid. So how the health workers interact with me, interact Mm -hmm. with our speech pathology is so, so important. And we need to do this journey together. This is not a one-outmanship. This is about us setting the systems and the structures up so that we don't have kids falling through the cracks.
1: I was hoping you'd say, yeah, if we just added these two questions into the intake <laughs> form for a pediatrician or a primary care, I think we'd go a long way. would that be nice? Wouldn't <laughs> yeah. that be nice? So we have a lot of healthcare professionals um, listening to this podcast. Some are GPs, some are primary care providers. We have audiologists that primarily specialize in hearing aids. We have audiologists that primarily specialize in implants. We have surgeons. What word of advice would you give to that larger healthcare community that's treating people with hearing loss, just to make sure that they're aware of some of the unconscious bias that might exist around different racial minorities and or indigenous communities across the globe?
0: Yeah, a couple of things there. Uh, First and foremost is um, the fact that they're still listening to this podcast after how long we've been talking. I want to thank (laughs) you. for that. Um, It's really nice and in a a funny way I'm really glad that I've connected to the listeners that are uh, hanging in there. Um, The second thing is I don't think our listeners are the people that need to hear this. And that's a funny thing to say because the fact that we're in this space and the fact that we're so passionate about this means that we already care. And so I would implore you to go back to your workspaces and really look at how we can reflect on ourselves and do a better job at looking after the vulnerable populations that we care for. I think we all have that. But look in different ways, look in different crevices. It's not about the simple thing of, you know, you need to get a referral. It's about how do we actually get the person to the referral to get to here? How do we actually increase that awareness? I think awareness is probably the the big message uh, from that. Um, And the most important thing, which I've always been taught by my mother, is two things, be kind and be useful. Everyone has a story so that when they're not showing up, when they're not paying attention, when they're not listening to what you are trying to engage them in, there's a reason for that. So be kind in the way in which you ask things. Be useful. If you're not there to actually help, move out of the road. Um, There are a lot of pretenders out there who think they're doing the right thing and actually when they reflect on themselves, realise they're probably not doing the right job, um, it's okay to say, look, this is not my thing, move along, but you're creating uh, a block for someone else to actually help in that space. So really make sure you're being proactive in this space and then look out for each other. And the most important thing with all this COVID stuff, which is probably highlighted more so in the isolation we've had, is really take care of yourself because if you're not 100% in yourself, then you can't help anyone. So take care.
1: Kelvin, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I learned a tremendous amount about Indigenous Australia and and some of the disparity in healthcare. And I'm going to take away with me the be kind and be useful motto that, uh, uh, that you just talked about.
0: Thank you so much for having me. And importantly, thank you so much for showing an interest in this. It means the world to me and to my family. Have a great day.
1: We've received some great feedback from our listeners around the world. Please continue to share your perspectives with us so we can create the most engaging podcast for hearing health professionals. Click the link in the episode notes to share your thoughts, we'd love to hear them. Just a quick reminder, the views of the interviewees in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Cochlear Limited or its subsidiaries. This material is intended for health professionals. If you are a consumer, please seek advice from your health professional about treatments for hearing loss. Outcomes may vary, and your health professional will advise about the factors which could affect your outcome.